I'm Will Howell. I'm Viola Juda. I'm Anthony Fowler, and this is Not Another Politics Podcast. We are still kind of living through the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. One notable, potentially promising thing about American democracy is that we had record levels of voter turnout. We had higher turnout than essentially any modern American election in, you know, in, in, in recorded history. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a notable milestone in and of itself. But even with this record level of turnout, it was still the case that fully one third of eligible voters didn't show up to vote. And and there's, you know, there's there's a big debate as to why that's the case. And one argument that's out there is that there just aren't enough policies and government programs that reach these people that actually make them realize that government's a part of their lives. And maybe uh, maybe if there were, you know, if we could imagine different kinds of government programs that would bring these people into the fold and get them excited to vote uh, that we haven't rolled out yet. So that's an interesting thing to talk about. Do we do we have any evidence that there there is something like a government program that could reach these people and get them to vote? Um, in ways that they haven't before. Yes, and moving forward, we all hope that the new administration is actually going to implement some reforms and perhaps reform even healthcare system. That also raises the question of whether we can expect the high turnout continue even in a situation in which we don't have this divisive politicians, this divisive rhetoric, but we just simply have good policy making. Well, you talked to someone who actually asked a question along these lines. I did and it wasn't just somebody it was you know the, the dean of the Harris School of Public <laughs> who is this person can't think of an name that's right I talked to our boss um, Kate Baker who is a health economist you know and she's done a lot of work on the effects of extending health care benefits on long-term earnings of people who receive these benefits, the health, obviously, of the recipients of these benefits. And she she also looked into the effect of the extension of healthcare benefits on one's willingness to engage in politics, one's willingness to subsequently turn out and vote. And, you know, her, her findings are, are, are pretty compelling and they speak to precisely these things, which have to do with when you extend the reach of the government and the benefits of government to individuals, does that bring them into the political fold and encourage them to actually engage in politics going forward? We're so pleased to have with us Kate Baker, who is a labor economist health economist. A health economist. Let's be clear. The dean of the Harris School of Public Policy and the closest thing to a boss that I have and that Anthony Fowler and Viola Duda have um, as the members of this podcast. How's that working out for you? We're holding on. <laughs> We're doing the best we can. Um, but we get to talk to you today, Kate, about a paper that you wrote uh, and that was published in the Quarterly Journal of Political Science this past fall called The Impact of Medicaid Expansion on Voter Participation, Evidence from the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. What happened in Oregon? What happened in Oregon was an unprecedented opportunity to study the effects of Medicaid on all sorts of outcomes, Before the ACA, Oregon was one of the states that had chosen to cover low-income, non-disabled, non-pregnant adults in its Medicaid program, but they'd run out of money, so they had closed the program to new enrollment as of 2004. In 2008, there had been attrition from the program, they had new resources from tax revenues, they decided that they were going to open the program for 10,000 more low-income adults to enroll. But they knew that a lot more than 10,000 people might want to enroll in the program, 
So they opened a waiting list and they drew names from the waiting list by lottery. And that is a perfect randomized controlled experiment through which to evaluate Medicaid. So people signed up for the list in early 2008 and throughout 2008, some people were selected and got to enroll in Medicaid if they were eligible. Some people were not. So that's our our treatment group is those who were drawn in the lottery, the control group, those who were not drawn in the lottery. Some of the people who were in the treatment group who got selected didn't end up on Medicaid. So we're always going to use the lottery selection as the way we figure out the effects of Medicaid on outcomes. So you can think of us as as measuring the effect of two different things. One is potentially being eligible for Medicaid, and the other is being enrolled in Medicaid. And the fact that the lottery was randomized lets us examine both sets of effects without worrying about the inherent bias that would be present if you just did an observational study of who was enrolled in Medicaid and who wasn't. Right. And by Evaluate Medicaid, you and your co-author Amy Finkelstein and a a number of other people with whom you've been working looked at the health outcomes and the economic outcomes of the program on participants. Broadly, what did you find? I'm an economist. I always look at things in terms of costs and benefits. What are the costs of expanding Medicaid? Well, it's the extra health care that people use. So what happens to health care use when you expand Medicaid? You might think, well, when you make health care more affordable by covering people with insurance, surely they're going to use more. Other people argued that Medicaid would be so effective in getting people out of the emergency room and into the doctor's office that it would actually save money. People would spend less on health care. Well, what we found is people spend more on health care. When you expand Medicaid, when people get onto the program, they go to the doctor more, they use more prescription drugs, they go to the hospital more, and they go to the emergency room more, not oh, less. Okay. So there, it, it isn't about shifting people away from the emergency room and into into doctor's offices. It's There's there's an effect all the way through. There is. And, and this was very surprising to policymakers. I think a lot of advocates of expanding Medicaid had hung their hats on the idea that it would save money as well as saving lives. And there is just no evidence that expanding Medicaid saves money. And maybe part of that disconnect comes from the misperception that emergency rooms treat uninsured people for free. Well, emergency rooms have to treat uninsured people who show up in need of critical care, but they're allowed to present them with a giant bill at the end. And that payment or risk of payment was enough to deter a lot of uninsured people from seeking care in the emergency room for situations where there was some discretion. And so what were the, the outcomes for people who participated in the program, the health or economic outcomes? So that was, you know, the costs were the expanded health care use, but what are the benefits? What's the point of expanding the insurance? Well, we looked at two different types of benefits. The first one, I think, is really underappreciated by people outside of health economists, perhaps, which is the financial security. Remember, insurance isn't just supposed to get you access to care. It's also supposed to keep you from getting evicted from your apartment because you paid your medical bill instead of your rent. So people who have insurance ought to be more financially secure than those who don't. Now, we found that having Medicaid substantially improved people's financial security. They were 25% less likely to have bills sent to collection. They were less likely to have to borrow money or skip paying other bills because of medical bills. They were less likely to say they couldn't get care because of prior unpaid bills. So they were much better off financially being insured. Great. And, And in terms of health outcomes? There, it's a pretty nuanced story. 
their mental health was substantially better. They were 30% likely Mm. to be suffering from depression as measured by our depression screener. This is a, a huge improvement in unmet health need, especially among this population. The physical health outcomes, though, were much more nuanced. We didn't find any evidence of measurable improvements in blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetic blood sugar control, obesity, all of those chronic physical health conditions that people hoped would be improved by having access to Medicaid. And and this resulted in much hand-wringing in public policy circles. And and I think it paints a pretty clear trade-off for voters and for policymakers to think about, which is when you expand Medicaid, it comes at a substantial cost to taxpayers, but it comes with substantial benefit to new enrollees in the form of financial security, mental health, self-reported health, but not discernible improvements in chronic long-term physical health conditions. So that, that's a that's, that's a that's the trade-off. That's the trade-off. Yep. Okay, well you said the word, you said the word voter. So we need to talk about Voting. And you and Amy had the thought that, well, maybe this program had effects that carried over into the political arena. There are lots of reasons to think that interactions with public programs like Medicaid or food stamps or welfare might affect people's voting behavior, and they go in potentially different directions. It could be that if you have more resources because you're not as worried about your medical bills because you are healthier and working more, and I'm just hypothesizing, Right. you would come out and vote more. You would have more flexibility. You would be more engaged in civil society. That's a story. Another story is you feel bad about the government program that you're on, either because it's not delivering the benefits you had hoped for or because there's some stigma associated with it. Maybe that makes you vote less. The lottery was in 2008. We looked at voting from 2008 through 2010. We could not look further into the future because of the further expansion of Medicaid eligibility in Oregon that happened after 2010. So we found that Medicaid increased voter turnout in 2008 substantially by something like 7% overall, which I think is an appreciable increase in voting behavior. Now, was this because more people registered or because there was greater turnout among already registered voters? We have a hard time teasing that apart, but the evidence suggests that perhaps it was new registrations, that being selected in the lottery and registering for Medicaid also increased your voter registration. And the effects associated with actually enrolling are, the estimated effects are about four times as large as the effects of simply being offered the opportunity. So the 7% 7 increase is the effect of actually enrolling. It's about... A little less than 2%. A little less than 2%. Check for dividing by four. Uh, (laughs) uh, And that's mechanically because winning the lottery increased Medicaid coverage by about 25 percentage points. Not everybody who won the lottery got enrolled. Right. Okay, so that's the overall effect. How does this vary for different subpopulations? So we found two subpopulations in which these effects were even greater. The first was men. The effects on men were more like 18%. We also found greater effects for residents of Democratic-leaning counties. That was about 10%. So these effects were not evenly distributed across the population. They were concentrated in those two groups. So this effect, you observe it in 2008... You don't observe it, though, thereafter. It's this short-term burst, right, in the presidential election, which 
disappears. Yes, that's a great follow-up, that it dissipates by 2010. And we don't know whether that's because there was only a boost that shows up in presidential elections and it would have been there again in 2012, or it's an effect that just dissipates over time. So I'm wondering if you're willing to lean back a little bit and to say, huh, what does this mean for the likely effects of other kinds of major health or welfare state programs on voting behavior? Is there something special, do you think, about this being Medicaid per se? Would you expect to see effects in other domains? Or do you want to hew closely to the data and say, this is what we've learned and this is all we've learned? I'm happy to speculate as long as we're clear that I'm just speculating. This is not something we can learn from our study. But thinking about how other programs operate and the way we see people interact with food stamps, with cash assistance benefits, I would imagine that that very much affects people's views of how well their government is serving them and how important it is that policymakers' preferences and priorities line up with one's own. So I wouldn't be surprised if there were similar results for other programs that affect people's well-being in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And if we could circle back to these two broad categories of reasons why we might be observing these effects, these resource effects versus these interpretive effects, what do you want to put your money on in the realm of speculation here? Do you want to pin this to resources? Do you want to pin it to a direct effect associated with how people are interpreting the benefits that flow from or the costs that flow from state activity? If I had to bet, and again, speculative. Here we are. Can I say that enough times? I'm speculating (laughs) here because it's not in the paper, so it's speculative. (laughs) Um, I would guess that this is more about the interpretation, the perception of government effectiveness and government's role in people's lives versus the direct resource effect. We did do a number of qualitative interviews, hour-long, free-form discussions with people about how getting access to Medicaid affected their lives, how they felt about things, how they interacted with the healthcare system, how they were able to use their benefits. And people talked about feeling like second-class citizens Mm -hmm. when they were uninsured. They were embarrassed to be uninsured. It made it hard for them to talk to their healthcare providers. They felt sheepish about not being able to pay for healthcare. This, This made them feel really bad about their place in the world. So that suggests to me people feel differently about their citizenship, their government, their community when they're insured versus when they're uninsured. And that's putting weight in my mind on the interpretive path. But again, that is uh, speculative. And it's just a feeling based on these interviews and the stories people told about their lives, which were quite moving. And so voting is in part predicated on people feeling good about entering the civic space and their status within it. And so what we might say is that people who are really feeling awful and really feeling alienated and disenfranchised and marginalized are less likely to vote in some ways paradoxically, because you think that's their instrument for affecting influence, but it doesn't work that way in no small part because you want to feel good about your status in this civic space. Um, and when you don't, you're less likely to show up. But what you have then is an intervention that attends to those concerns that then brings people out, but curiously brings people out just for the short term and that may be happening, 
would you sign on to this? What may be happening is that then having become a part of the program, that just becomes woven into the fabric of their lives and then they, they move on. It's a sort of short-term stimulus in terms of their thinking about their status as citizens, even though there may be longer-term implications in terms of their health and um, uh, financial well-being. And, and that's certainly one very plausible pathway. It's also possible that as people interact with the healthcare system, the reality that all of their health needs are not met sinks in too. You know, we didn't find detectable effects on blood pressure, diabetes, oh, cholesterol. And so it may be that people got excited get at the a prospect little, and, and then, then get a little disillusioned that they're still struggling a great deal. Now, now I want to circle back to which pathway seems most plausible. The resource path or the resource mechanism for political engagement could be more broadly cast to think about psychic resources, cognitive resources. People reported being really stressed about being uninsured in the qualitative interviews. I was putting that in the interpretive bucket, but there is real cognitive load that comes with that. And so if you think about resources more broadly cast, there is more psychic space to engage with other things when this enormous burden of stress and worry is reduced. Yes. So so that that's another pathway. Maybe it's not such a bright line between the two after all. It's different from monetary resources, but it's resources that are vital to functioning. Okay. So if we think about Medicaid expansion as a get-out-the-vote opportunity, these returns are not great. No, just in terms of the amount of dollars that are spent, that in the end we get a two percentage point return, right, for rolling out a major initiative and that knocking on people's doors or sending them reminders that the election is coming up may simply be a more cost-effective way to get these particular returns. Or are you encouraged? You're encouraged. I'm always encouraged. No, that's not true. Um, I I don't know how to think about the cost effectiveness. I'm not an expert in get out the vote mechanism, so I don't know how much it, how many doorbells you have to ring mm-hmm. to get one more person to vote. And clearly the dollars spent on Medicaid had manifold effects. Yes. People were much less depressed. They were much more financially secure. They got access to more care. They were more likely Huge to returns. say so if it has this incremental effect of also Increasing voter turnout, is that expensive or is that cheap? Or is it just a bonus, right? You put it in the realm of bonus, I'm guessing. It's like, great to see that as well. I think so. Okay, so let's get into the paper. Will, do you want to just walk us through the numbers a little bit? So we we heard in the interview about the design. Healthcare was randomly assigned to some people, some people lost the lottery. And so we're going to compare people who got free health care from the government versus didn't. Just to walk through the numbers a little bit more so we understand how big are these effects? How much does health care increase turnout in 2008? You bet. So let's do this. There are two kinds of comparisons. One is simply comparing those people who were offered the opportunity to get Medicaid versus those people who were not offered. And that's straightforward because of the randomization. And what she finds is that there is a 0.7 percentage point difference between those two populations. That is, people who were offered the opportunity to get Medicaid were, on average, 
0.7 percentage points more likely to turn out to vote. There's another kind of comparison that one might be interested in, which is what's the effect of actually taking up the opportunity to, to get Medicaid. Now, she doesn't have randomization there, but what you can do, what she does do in the paper, is use the lottery as an instrument to predict the probability that you took up the treatment. And there what she finds, uh, there is a 2.5 percentage point difference on average between those who took up the offer and those who didn't. Now, if you want to talk about these not in terms of percentage points, but percent, then you have to think about the change relative to a baseline. And the baseline for this population was about 34% were turning out to vote anyway. And so when you talk about differences relative to that baseline, then that 0.7 becomes roughly 2.5, 2.1, and the, the 2.5 becomes about 7.58% um, difference between the two populations. Okay, so these are not huge effects. If you just compare the people who won versus lost the lottery, they voted more, but not by a lot, by 0.7 percentage points. So why would we think we would see any effects whatsoever when we think about the rollout of a Medicaid program on voter turnout? This isn't just a case of the authors kind of pulling out a random outcome of interest and just rerunning regressions they've been accustomed to running. Um, there, there's a whole literature that that speaks to that speaks <laughs> to it could the, be it could be, but uh, nevertheless it could be there, like he's <laughs> but there is a whole literature that, 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 yes, that speaks yes. <laughs> to how policy sets in motion political changes. Yes, oh, absolutely. This is a, this is a huge literature in political science with lots of claims as to why we should expect to see something really big. That you know, of course, it makes sense that politics and policy are closely connected to one another, and major government programs should affect people's political behavior. Partly because you care about those government programs, and maybe once you become a recipient of a large government program, maybe you you find that it's that you like it and it's a good program, and you want to vote to keep it going. And you know, one of the famous examples that's been studied a lot and written a lot about is uh, Social Security and Medicare, which a lot of political scientists claim essentially created uh, senior citizens as this important voting block that vote at very high rates, often vote together for the same party, and are willing to kind of vote directly on those couple issues that they care about very directly. And so if you buy that story, if you buy the story that big government policies can create active voting citizens, this should be a nice opportunity to observe it. But you can tell the story that when I don't have healthcare, when I don't even have access to healthcare, I'm motivated to go and vote because I want to change my situation for the better. Once I get this good policy, for example, I get healthcare, if this was my number one issue, I might be less inclined to actually spend my time on politics and trying to figure out whom I should vote for because I got the most important thing in my life from politics. So the stakes are lower. And it's not obvious to me whether receiving some benefits from the government makes me some sort of thankful and, and, and more inclined to vote, or whether it makes me thankful and I say, thank you very much, <laughs> I move on. You and know, now, now the stakes are not there. So I think these fit under her category of interpretive effects, which is that, look, you wanted this benefit, you got it, and you might want to participate in political activity to ensure that those benefits continue to flow. That's one story. Alternatively, you might get the benefit and realize that, oh my God, our healthcare system's a mess, and this isn't what I thought it would be, and now I have to wait for long periods of time when I thought I thought I was finally going to solve my health problems, and in fact, I'm not, and that that might lead to disillusionment and, and anger, and she recognizes that. So in the, in the category of what she calls interpretive effects, they could go either way. I mean, so, so in their experiment, it seems that most of the effects were positive, but even if I assume that we know that they are happy, that they actually like the program, I still don't know which way I should expect the 
turn out to go. Like, I'm happy, so I want to reward the politicians or I want to hold on to what I have and I want to make sure that I select good politicians because now, now I see the government works. Or I'm happy, no one's going to take it away from me because I think it's, you know, it's sort of something that's, that creates entrenchment and it's hard to take away. So now the stakes are lower. And, you know, it's interesting that they were able to look at this question. But I want to point out that if you asked me before I read this paper, I would say anything goes. So the other category that she points to are these resource effects, which is that it has nothing to do with your understanding of government or the stakes involved in, a, in an upcoming election. What matters is that by virtue of having participated in this program, my finances have eased, she shows that they have, and therefore I'm in a better position to expend the costs associated with voting, either because I can pay for the gas to get to the station or because I have a little bit more free time, because my anxiety is a little bit lower, these kinds of things, right? The, the, the immediate effect is in improving my economic life and that, in turn, uh, improves the odds that I'm willing to, to actually vote. So to what extent do we believe that this is the main explanation for this 2.5 percentage point increase in voting in 2008? Given that we know that this effect went away very quickly, it didn't seem to occur in local elections that happened after 2008. Like, What's your thinking? I know that this is speculation, as <laughs> Kate was very clear uh, about in the interview, but like, you know, what's your gut feeling? Is this the explanation for what we see? It's possible. I think I'm, I'm willing to. I'm, I'm certainly willing to believe that that is a viable candidate for explaining this result. And the fact that you don't see an effect in 2010 is interesting. And maybe you say, okay, maybe it's not a resource thing because they're still better off in 2010. Why aren't they voting more? Well, you can still tell a story, right? That's a midterm election, not a presidential election. It could be that we are mostly talking about very low SES people who. Maybe they maybe it's very hard to even induce them to get interested in a local election, but they can get interested in a presidential election. So it's possible that those things all interact and maybe it is partly a resource story that I'm I'm less economically distressed and now I can pay attention to the presidential election and vote in it. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. So the effects are greater for men and for people who live in democratic counties. And if what, if what you want to do is say that this is a resource effect, Right, then the obligation is to say, why would we see it in 2008, not in 2010? And why would the effects, would we observe them for men, but not for women? And for people in, who live in Democratic counties and not for people who live in Republican counties? I mean, it is worth saying, again, these are, these are small effects. We're not talking about huge numbers of people that were mobilized to vote to begin with. And we don't really have a lot to go off of when we're trying to make a guess about why we're getting this effect, I think. We don't really have any direct evidence that speaks to it. I mean, we, we would kind of like to know if we had another experiment where we gave people private health insurance that wasn't connected to the government in any way, right? Would, would that have had a, the same effect, in which case that would seem like a resource story? Or, or is it really something about, you know, knowing that it came from the government that drives this effect? I don't think we, I don't think we know. I don't think we have a whole lot to go on here. You know, if if we truly believe that there is something more than the resource effect, that somehow just learning that the government's functioning motivates me to, to vote, then I would say that 
perhaps the design is not the best to pick up this effect because I would envision that if I'm one of these 90,000 people who applied to be put on the wait list, I'm already informed that actually this expansion of Medicaid is happening. I'm informed that, look, 10,000 people are going to get Medicaid and you're as likely to get it as someone else. Yes, I get unlucky that I don't get selected. So I might be a little bit less happy than the people who are selected. But when it comes to my information about what the government is doing for people, I have similar information to the people who actually got selected by the lottery. So so I could see how I wouldn't be shocked that if you had ability to compare the control group to people who actually never even heard about this lottery because they are above the poverty threshold, I wouldn't be, be surprised that you also see some sort of change internal. Do we know what the people in the, you know, in the effective control group learned? I mean, did they, I assume they, I assume the state did not send them a letter that said, you were in this lottery, but shoot, you lost out. Sorry, no healthcare for you. At least in 2009, in the second wave of this expansion, that they were explicitly told that that you could be part of the lottery. Would you like to be part of the lottery? So that's a good question. But my understanding when I was reading, and maybe I just made an assumption based on this 2009 lottery, everyone whose names was on the wait list, they, they knew that this lottery was happening. Then I would say that they might be underestimating the effect of... Um, of government program expansion and the sort of uh, effects of, okay, now I know government is working because everyone of those 90,000 people should know that there was an expansion. I mean, you raise a really interesting point, which is maybe, you know, usually we think it's great when we get to randomize some treatment because it's great for causal identification and ensuring the treatment group and control group are comparable. But the fact that it was randomized and the fact that it was known or could be known to the subjects that it was randomized changes things, right? As you say, I mean, if you know that you you got healthcare, but it was only because of the random lottery, I don't know, are you pleased with the government or do you just think you were lucky? And similarly, if you know that you didn't get healthcare because you lost the lottery, are you mad at the government for even doing this lottery? Actually, maybe are the people in control group, as you say, are they more likely to vote because they realize, oh, hey, there's this government program that I could be eligible for and, and I should make sure I vote to expand the program. I mean, you're right. I mean, I think it really complicates things a lot. Um, it makes it hard to generalize the estimates we're getting from here to the broader question of do do large government programs that aren't randomized in this way, do those increase participation? It also potentially makes you worry about those underlying assumptions you need in the IV analysis, right? Or is the exclusion restriction violated here? Is there something just about winning the lottery that affects your behavior over and above whether or not you actually get healthcare as a result of it? I mean, there's there's all kinds of interesting things to think about. Yeah, yeah, and, and like in my mind, that might be an explanation for why the number when we just compare people who won the lottery and lost the lottery is actually relatively small. As Will said, it was like 0.6 percentage points because people might recognize that, uh, you know, I learned a lot about this program, but, but the final outcome was just a matter of, of luck. And then this additional two, point, two percentage points that they're finding when they just look at people who indeed uh, were part of Medicaid, that, that might be explained by this additional resource effects and health effects and so on. I think, I mean, it's worth underscoring why this point is relevant for the two key comparisons that they're making. When it comes to the intent to treat, where you're just comparing those who were offered versus those who were not, what you're suggesting is, is that the treatment isn't just the offer. The treatment is also the denial of an opportunity, that some people who were on a waiting list and may have been hoping for it were in some ways maybe affected by the fact that they were considered they had a shot at something and then it was taken away from them. And that might have changed their behavior. And, And so that's relevant for how we interpret the intent to treat. Then there also is, for the treatment on the treated, right, the assumption is is that these differences that we observe 
are driven by just those who took up the offer and actually received the Medicaid, which is like one in four of, of the, the people who actually were offered it. But if in fact, those people who were offered who didn't take it up were nonetheless in some way affected by the offer, maybe they were happy, right? Like, oh, you see, life is good. I, my, I'm really fortunate. Or maybe that opened up other, other kinds of opportunities or lead, or more specifically, led them to seek other kinds of opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise received. Then we've got problems in using the intent to treat effect as the kind of baseline to ratchet up from in order to assess what the treatment on the treated effect is. And so like these, yeah, these questions about what the nature of the treatment is and who's being treated are really, are really important, both for matters of interpretation and for matters of estimation. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a strong position here. You guys fight, fight with me if you want to, but I'm going to take a strong position and say that this is a striking study mostly for the fact that we get a very small estimate. We have a really nice opportunity to credibly estimate the effect of a very large government program that should be very salient to the recipients of it, that should meaningfully affect people's lives. People say they care about it tremendously. And yet, this huge government program that all the recipients should know that it's coming from the government, nevertheless, it doesn't affect their political behavior very much. So we've got a huge program and we've got a huge literature that says there should be big effects. And nevertheless, there's not a whole lot going on here. And one way to interpret this is, this is actually a really compelling study that maybe that old literature is somewhat overblown. Maybe these big government programs don't affect politics as much as people thought. I want to argue with you. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. Glass are off. Okay. So I, I'll point to two things, and then Viola, you knock them out, metaphorically. So... Um, I think the literature, when it talks about how policy changes politics, when they talk about voters, what they're mostly talking about has less to do with turnout and more about how you vote. It's that you become uh, aligned with a party you weren't previously aligned with. And we don't have any data on that here. And there may well have been huge effects there. That this they do have... talk about both, to be fair. They talk about both. And they even, you know, turnout is a big, big part of the senior citizen story. Turnout is a, you know, we're supposed to th learn from that literature that the reason that old people vote at such high rates is because of Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, but there's, okay, but there's this other piece. There's this other piece, which is relevant for the turnout part, which is that the policy-changing politics what often people point to is the development of new organizational interests and, and interest groups that come to represent senior citizens in this case, that's born of the policy. And so it isn't that automatically people say, ah, there's the policy, I now am gonna be more likely to vote. It's because then a set of organized interests build up around that policy to protect it and then rally the beneficiaries of it to turn out to vote. And we're not gonna see those kinds of effects in the short term. Um, we didn't see them when you rolled out Social Security in the short term. This played out over long periods of time. Now, it's very hard over long periods of time to kind of have the research design that they have. We're able to estimate these short-term direct effects doing a randomized field trial, whereas to say, what does this mean for 20 years out? It's, it, we're not there yet. It's harder to do. But Viola, what do you think? So I think I think I want to say something along the lines that you suggested. So so and I completely buy Anthony. Who are you with uh, here? You you will. <laughs> okay, good. good. I got and, company. And uh, but I'm still sympathetic <laughs> to what uh, what Anthony is saying. I believe that this story has some merit that by um, implementing a policy that benefits or perhaps harms a certain group of the society, you are sort of making this group more cohesive, uh, the, their common interests become salient, it's easier to organize those people, and then uh, you sort of solve the collective action problem in, in this way by, by, by making them 
realize that they can vote as a block and then they show up and vote. So I completely buy that the story might exist. And, and you're telling me there's literature that suggests that the story occurred. But I think here what we have, we have a group of people who have exactly the same interests. And we're just comparing those who didn't get Medicaid to those who got Medicaid. So there's, if I were to apply exactly the same story, I would say they all should realize that they should vote as a block. Yes, I'm unhappy because you got lucky and I didn't, but we still have exactly the same interest to, to either, main, you know, for the people who already got it to maintain the support of Medicaid expansion and people who didn't get it to sort of continue supporting it so that we expanded even more. So, so maybe that's why we don't see this kind of coordination effects there because we just have people with exactly the same interest in the, in the data set. This is, again, where it's, it's very relevant how this information was provided to the, to the subjects in the experiment because if when you win the lottery, if you get a letter that says, hey, you're one of the very lucky few that won this lottery, then yes, you won't sit around and think, oh yeah, we should all get together and form a coalition. If you just get the letter and it says, all of a sudden you have this big government program they didn't have before, you might say, oh, this is, this is nice. I should find people like me and we should. But it, it, it's not obvious to me that that's relevant. So, so basically, no matter what I learn about this lottery and no matter whether I won or not, no matter what happens, uh, you are moving all these people in the same direction. So it's, you know, comparing people who didn't get it to people who got it, it doesn't really going to tell us whether this coordination somehow occurred by the virtue of this program bringing up salience of this group of people. Like, all those people are in the same boat and they have exactly the same interests. So, except, I mean, except the literature really is about the effects of becoming a recipient of some government program. It's not just that you could become a recipient or that you have shared interests with other people because everyone could and is a recipient of some you know, major government program, probably. But the literature is really about the fact that I, as a politician, can change the voting population and maybe even benefit my own re-election chances by bringing out some big program that like introduces a whole new set of people into the voting population and gets them all voting. And so it's yeah, but, really but about the receiving is... the thing. That's what the literature is about. I mean, even before Social Security and Medicare were passed, they, senior citizens could have organized with the idea that maybe there should be something like Social Security and Medicare, but they didn't. So we're going back to this whole question of like, yes, is there even a compelling logic to this literature to begin with? Yeah, so what's the story that they're putting forward? Is the story of, of resource constraint that you gave us benefits as, you know, elderly people, and that's why now we have more time to engage in politics? Or is the story some sort of more psychological? We are raising salience of a certain group, uh, and, and that group uh, realizes that, that now the, the stakes, they have common interests, and actually this common interest could be satisfied, and it's easier to organize them as a voting group. So I think that's important because if it's the former, then I agree we should pick it up in this experiment. One group got resources, the other didn't. But it's, if it's all about you suddenly identify a group with common interests and they suddenly learn that they can actually affect politics because the, the circumstances are such that it's possible to actually implement policies that are affecting them, then I don't think this experiment would pick it up because both the control and the treated group have exactly the same interest. You know, when I think about this broader literature, I think what it productively suggests is that the politics about possible policies, hypothetical policies, things that one might do, are very different from the politics of policies that have been created. And that that's in no small part because the interest group uh, ecosystem that's built around existing policies looks very different from the interest group ecosystem that's built around ideas of what that which one might do just as our understanding of uh, the merits of policy changes as a function of whether or not they're in play or not. You know, our, the standard story that says, 
Well, there are these prior interests and preferences and expectations that an electorate has that lead to the adoption of policies and that there's nothing that brings, that, that sort of what this literature refers to as feedback loops, is an anemic characterization of our politics. And that the literature is good, it's right to say that in fact, um, that which people receive matters for the nature of their political engagement, where we think about that broadly. Now, having said that, Anthony puts it right, which is, okay, if you really believe that story, here is arguably the best design that's been put out there to actually test it. And the results that we get back are pretty small. I mean, there's something there, but they're pretty small and they're tenuous. They disappear two years later. I still think that there's reason to believe that they, these other effects play out um, and that maybe they play out over longer periods of time, but I don't have anything like the quality of evidence that uh, our boss presents to actually back up those claims. But I don't want to abandon them either. The discussion convinced me that there are a lot of questions that I don't know answers to. And I think the paper opens up more questions for me than in answers. And I appreciate the, the clean design, but there's a lot to learn still from perhaps other studies. And I'm guessing there, there should be a, a lot of studies that we could look at uh, about what's the impact of expansion of benefits on people's participation in political life. I share that view. I mean, in that we're accustomed to thinking about randomized field trials as the gold standard of social scientific research. And, it, and in that way, we would naively think that it settles matters. It's like, okay, we've got something definitive here to hold on to. But that what we have with this study, and which is indicative of the conversation that we just had, is that it opens up all these questions. We're not exactly sure what the nature of the treatment is. We're not exactly sure why women versus men show differential effects or why the effects in, we see something in 28 that then goes away in 2010. This is not an argument against randomized field trials, but the, the notion that they settle matters of long-standing dispute and study by big literatures once and for all is a misnomer. And, and I don't think that Kate would suggest that this was meant to settle anything once and for all, but it was a unique opportunity to investigate something of long-standing interest. All right. Well, we, we've kind of already been debating my bottom line, and I'm going st- to I'm going to stick with it, and I'm going to say I'm going to say I buy the paper more than you guys do in the sense that there's a big literature, there's a lot of grand claims being made in that literature about the fact that government recipients should be induced to vote more, that that recipients of major government programs should be induced to vote more. The evidence supporting those claims is not very good. It's not very compelling. Here's the cleanest, most compelling experimental evidence we could imagine for some huge program. And look, the effects are just not very big and they dissipate pretty quickly. And so I'm willing to say, I think this is a really interesting study that does pose a big challenge to that old literature that um, now the kind of the default going forward should be, okay, what is the more compelling evidence that supports this story? If it's just that, you know, old people vote more than young people, that can't be, that can't be the compelling evidence. It's got to be something that something more compelling that recipients of government programs uh, actually are induced to vote more. Here's the best study we have on that. And the effects are pretty small. So I'm willing to, to say a little bit more than you guys are and say. Um, that literature is now on its heels. That literature has a challenge to try to come up with more compelling evidence or even tell us what are the testable hypotheses that we should see because a pretty clear testable prediction of their story doesn't hold up in what I think is a pretty compelling case. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening.